HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My Family Recipe is a new podcast from Food52 and Heritage Radio Network, bringing you cherished heirloom recipes and the stories behind them. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Now, I wasn't really paying attention to what I was eating as I placed that first unwrapped kiss in my mouth because I was watching a mod rerun, and you know how I love mod. But once the little pyramid of waxy chocolate goodness started to dissolve on my tongue and my buds got the first hit of what felt and tasted like a flavors of fall air freshener, I realized pretty quickly what had just happened to me. I had been conned. I had been duped. I thought it was just a regular Hershey's kiss, but no, it wasn't. It was a seasonal kiss, a special edition kiss. No plain milk chocolate or even dark or almond. It was a freaking white chocolate pumpkin effing spice flavored kiss. And it was as if I'd opened up the inside of a Glade plug-in and scooped out some of the scented waxy gel and ate it. Let me just say that a candy corn with a hidden razor blade would have been preferable. You just heard Erica Wides describe the first and presumably last time she tasted a pumpkin spice Hershey's Kiss from a 2013 episode of Let's Get Real. Eight Octobers later, and Hershey's weird take on a classic flavor has since been discontinued. But it seems pumpkin spice is here to stay. This week, we're rethinking some of our fall favorites. Turns out that even when it comes to trusty seasonal spices and flavors, there's more than meets the eye. I'm Dylan Hoyer, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. The notorious pumpkin spice latte, or PSL, has monopolized the fall drink market. But what if we told you there were other spice concoctions beyond the autumnal beverage we all love to hate and maybe hate to love? For this alternative, we turn to Amy Rothstein, founder of Donna, who appears on episode 99 of HRN Happy Hour. So I started Donna five years ago. 
And when we started, we were just making chine turmeric concentrates for all the coffee shops, you know, mm-hmm. the coffee shops on every single corner of New York City. Um, and when I started, I, I knew it was going to be more than just our concentrates for lattes. And I kind of thought it was going to go in the tea direction. Like, okay, Donna will be a, um, I'll start as Donna Chai and then we'll do ready-to-drink teas or we'll figure out importing teas. Um, but as I kept on brewing our concentrates, I realized that the spice aspect of my recipes was far more interesting to me. So it was when I was making our turmeric concentrate, which contains, um, which is made with pink peppercorn, um, that I realized how the pink peppercorn spice could stand alone. Um, and I remember tasting it and thinking, okay, this has to be a pink peppercorn lemon spice soda. Mm. Um, so I, I kind of saw it as an opportunity. So we make everything in-house. Um, we're based in Gowanus in Brooklyn. Um, and that's something that was really important to me from the start. I wanted to be a producer of food. Um, I didn't want to just have the idea and hand it off to a larger manufacturer. So um, that process has been really challenging and really expensive, but really rewarding. (laughs) Amy's ethos of prioritizing ethically sourced spices and producing her concentrates from start to finish is a refreshing alternative to the often mass-produced and processed variety of pumpkin spice products. But if sodas aren't cozy enough for you in the crisp fall weather, Perhaps Donna's unique tea concentrate will be more up your alley. When I was creating the, the turmeric concentrate recipe, um, our chai was already out. And um, there still aren't many liquid turmeric concentrates for lattes out. Most are powdered. But the, the ones available had a, um, a flavor profile uh, similar to masala chai. So they used cinnamon, cardamom, ginger. And I didn't... I wanted to have two distinct um, concentrates, so I wanted—I didn't want to just mimic our masala chai. Our turmeric concentrate is steeped with ginger, lemongrass, allspice, pink peppercorn, and black pepper. Amy's work shows us that there are endless combinations of spices to enjoy. And some, like the turmeric latte, even come in the bright orange festive color we crave around this time of year. So next time you're in the mood for fall flavors, grab a spice soda, ask your local barista about their favorite seasonal latte, or even experiment at home with your own kitchen spices. As Amy can attest, you never know when you might discover your new favorite flavor. Pumpkin spice isn't the season's only attention hog. Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts have released maple-themed concoctions for fall, such as maple pecan-flavored coffee, and maple cream cheese spread. Trader Joe's has maple almonds, maple and sea salt kettle corn, and maple walnut biscotti. You get the picture. We may associate maple with fall foods, yet unlike the apple and pumpkin staples of autumnal fare, maple syrup is not harvested during this season. The best temperatures is like 25 at night and 40 degrees during the day with a little bit of sun. Mm -hmm. 75% of our syrup is made within a two-week uh, time frame. So it's it's really, really short. Uh, the season is usually about six weeks total, and uh, it's, it's usually pretty intense for most maple producers during the first and second week of March. 
That was Kevin Hawley of Seldom Seen Farm in Geauga County, Ohio, on episode 18 of Eat Your Heartland Out. While we may often associate maple products with Canada and Vermont, the so-called maple belt also extends into Midwestern states. Here is Kevin Hart, the president of the Indiana Maple Syrup Association, with more about the maple belt. It's basically a 500-mile radius around the Great Lakes. Um, uh, Indiana's the southwesternmost state. We have Iowa. There's producers in eastern Iowa, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. Minnesota, um, the Canadian provinces that surround the Great Lakes, Ohio, Michigan, um, northern Kentucky, mm. and uh, West Virginia. Um, they have the elevation and the freezing, thawing temperatures so, and the maple trees, so it just makes sense. With an increasing variety of producers, consumers like to know what makes their choice of maple syrup unique. Commercial brands of syrups are bottled from a blend of multiple maple sources, but smaller farms are a whole different story. Pierre Della Franconi of Butternut Maple Farm in Ohio describes how Ohio's terroir factors into his maple syrup. Well, what helps us in Northeast Ohio is also all the lake effect snow we get. Mm. It helps keep moisture in the ground and helps the ground stay frozen longer. And uh, we also have um, very good soil conditions. Uh, we have a lot of sandy soil mixed in with the clay, but all those minerals that are in the soils help. And um, our trees down here get generally bigger because it's not as cold as long as other parts where they make syrup, so that also helps. And the bigger the crown of the tree, the more um, nutrients and sun and everything. It just helps overall. And here's Kevin Hawley again, the maple farmer you heard from first. We don't have the typical sugar bush, as it's called. We tap 100% red maple trees. We produce a lot of dark um, and amber syrup that has a really Mm -hmm. robust maple flavor. And one thing that we figured out is that we age our maple syrup, typically the last half of the season, in bourbon barrels. If you're a diehard maple fan every fall, the good news is you can celebrate the harvest on small farms in the spring as well. We'll be right back with more Meat and 3 after a brief break. Good food is worth a thousand words. This is Arthi Menon, and I'm delighted to share a new podcast with you. My Family Recipe from Food 52 and Heritage Radio Network. Adapted from Food 52's much-loved column of the same name, the My Family Recipe podcast will bring its pages to life. Each episode of My Family Recipe brings you a cherished heirloom recipe and the story behind it from voices across the world of food. We'd open these tubs of dough and they would exhaust these incredible yeasty fumes and it just smelled like nothing else. It was so intoxicating. I'll interview writers and chefs, parents and children about what's passed down along with the foods that we know and love. Chinese people aren't like born with a download on how to like velvet chicken. You know, like that's not something that just like comes to you. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Meat and Three. Second only to pumpkin spice in fall flavor ubiquity, 
are the artificial recreations of all things Apple. Much of what we find in the seasonal aisle are mass-produced, one-note flavors. They can make it easy to forget that apples do in fact grow on trees. In truth, apples have plenty of nuances, derived from their variety and terroir. You know I drink a lot of cider. Um, and I love the idea that you can really just sort of drink your way through different places and kind of have this like intimate experience, like a little journey where you, you can go around and see these different places. But the, the, the sense you're using is not your eyes. It's, it's your mouth. It's your taste. That was Autumn Stoshek discussing the transformative power of cider on episode 566 of Beer Sessions Radio with host Jimmy Carboni. Autumn is the co-founder of Eve Cidery, an orchard-based cidery employing regenerative agriculture in the Finger Lakes region of New York. Let's hear more from Autumn as she dives deeper into the intimate connection between the land and her bottle of Autumn's Gold Cider. This cider is, for me, kind of like our signature blend. All all of the fruit that is in it was grown on our farm. And when I think about how both regenerative agriculture and natural cider making techniques allow the cider to tell you the story about the place where it is grown, I think about this blend because we're, our, our orchard is located on a very steep hillside that's got thin soil over layers and layers of shale. And the trees are, in a lot of ways, forging their own way. They're not being coddled, you know. Um, it's certainly not like a, a man-made situation. And the fruit that comes off of those trees is not like anything I've tasted really anywhere else. And so to me, those apples and the cider they make always tastes like that sort of hard scrabble, shale-covered hillside. Fellow Beer Sessions guest Deva Moss is also a cider maker based in the Finger Lakes. She's behind Redbird Orchard Cider. For Deva, the taste of her star blossom cider is deeply personal. We don't have any employees. Um, It's just my husband, Eric, and myself and our our three boys. So when I taste it, you know, it is, it's not just the apple varieties or even the fermentation uh, style or any of that. It's like, it's, it's everything that goes into it. I mean, it's almost, it's pretty much what Autumn was saying. You know, it's, it's how many days of sunshine it's, you know, what animals were in the orchard. It's all of those things. And I I don't know how well it would translate if you're a huge, you know, acres and acres and thousands and thousands of gallons. But for us, there's a downside to being small, but the upside is we can really feel all of it in that cider. The hyperlocal flavors expressed by Autumn and Deva's ciders prove that apples can be more than just essence in a bottle. Next, we dive into the transcontinental and transhistorical travels of another familiar fruit. Squashes, pumpkins, and everything in between are firm staples in our festivities. Fall is an all-out gourds galore. 
but there's so much more to squash. In episode four of Cooking in Mexican from A to Z, mother-son chefs and co-hosts Aron Sanchez and Zarela Martinez explore how squash has traveled the globe, beginning with its origin thousands of years ago in Mexico. Culinary historian Anne Mendelssohn joins them. The Spanish and the Portuguese, they took these things that they cannibalized from the New World. Um, they took them all around the planet. They took squashes, and um, pumpkins were among the squashes, uh, back to Europe, and um, people, well, I think in England, nobody knew exactly what to do with them except breed them into monstrosities like vegetable marrows that win prizes at fairs and taste like cardboard. Um, <laughs> in Austria... They said, aha, and they planted these pumpkins, and they used the seeds to make an oil. Then the big, meaty pumpkins, they got to Africa, and Mm. uh, the Africans did wonderful things breeding them there and took them back when they were enslaved, took them back to the Caribbean plantations, and Sorella knows about the influence there. Oh, yeah, because, you know, in in Veracruz, when Cortés landed there in 1519, he already had an African slave with him. And they they brought all their their foods, you know, like the roots and the malangas, the yucas, that's all associated with, with African cuisine. Much more than just autumn ornamentals, squashes trace the history of American colonization and its culinary ripples throughout the world. Rich in history and flavor, squash played an important role in hybridizing cuisines. The Spanish brought all the old world ingredients like lard and poultry and spices, olives, all that. And the Mexicans contributed all the native ingredients that we're covering in this series. Mm -hmm. And they adopted each other's um, ingredients and cooked them their way. Mm -hmm. And then the Mexicans took the, the, the Spanish ingredients and cooked them their way. So this huge, wonderful cuisine was born. So this fall, when you find yourself diving into a new recipe or happily goring out a pumpkin, take a moment to think about how far your squash has come. Learn more about our guests and topics from this week in the show notes. Plus, find links to listen and follow all of the podcasts we shared in this episode. Special thanks this week to Junie Terry, Chapin Montague, Andriana Chow, Sarah Mathis, and Ellie Katz. Meet in Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Dylan Hoyer. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet in Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet in Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at Heritage Radio Network and follow us at Heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or just like to say hey, Write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out.